Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, why this year's U.S. midterm elections will decide whether the 2024 presidential election can be overturned, no matter what the voters decide. Republican candidates for offices around the country are taking their cue from former President Donald Trump. They falsely dispute the outcome of the 2020 election, saying Trump was the real winner and Joe Biden stole it from him. And in five key states where Trump tried and failed to overturn the results, the Republican nominees for governor and other important jobs overseeing elections are pushing changes to how elections are run and how votes are counted. And if they succeed, it could be easier to change the outcome if Trump or another candidate tried to do it again in 2024. Well, there's no question that they rigged the election. There's no question that they set about changing the rules of of the game three months out, and they gave us mail-in balloting, and we have no voter ID. That was Adam Laxalt, the Republican Senate nominee in Nevada. It was candidates like him that led a team of Bloomberg reporters to fan out across the country to try to figure out how vulnerable the states are to having their election results overturned including how state lawmakers have changed laws around voting and elections since 2020, and whether election officials and candidates for important offices say they'll respect the outcome in 2024. Candidates like Tudor Dixon, who's running for governor in Michigan. They wouldn't have voted to have other people influence this election. I think there were too many opportunities for fraud and that Democrats took advantage of the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic. From all this reporting, Bloomberg created an election risk index, which assesses what the candidates might do if they win office. People like Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate for governor in Arizona. And it's really, really game over for those spineless politicians who stood by and they didn't do a damn thing for us. They sat there. They did nothing as our elections were stolen from us. And Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. Most of the bad things sadly happened in Philadelphia. We, we see uh, bags and bags of ballots showing up with, without any good chain of custody. And all this smells very rotten and something's gone wrong. To sort all this out, I'm here with Ryan Teague Beckwith, one of the reporters on the Election Risk Project. And later in the show, we're going to speak with Mario Parker, Bloomberg's politics editor. Ryan, you and reporter Bill Allison, who is your partner on this project, along with a whole lot of other journalists in Bloomberg bureaus around the country, you set out to answer this deceptively difficult question. How sound is America's election system? How do you even go about trying to measure something as elusive as that? What we came up with was a set of criteria for each state that we looked at where we could kind of break it down to yes, simple yes, no questions. Do they have this or not? And we looked at voting access, first of all, um, registering and voting. And then second of all, we looked at ballot security. What is ballot security? You know, how do they count the votes? 
how uh, secure are the voting machines. The, a lot of the things that people have been calling election integrity, we're trying to kind of shy away from that because it's kind of become such a politicized term. But, you know, is, is it being counted like accurately and quickly? I think those two things have always been kind of like when any changes to election law were made, they usually included some voter access and some ballot security measures combined. And we wanted to make sure that we were capturing both of those. Um, and then for the third was like, what are the people who are running to oversee elections? Like, what are the governors and secretaries of state and attorney generals? What are they saying? What did they say about the 2020 election? And then we looked at all of the laws that were being proposed in all 50 states. And there were a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, there's thousands. Uh, it, there was more laws proposed in this two-year period since the 2020 election by an order of magnitude than in any previous two-year two years after an election for like the last 20 years. So definitely like a ton of interest in this and both Democrats and Republicans. And in some ways, like voting is actually easier in a lot of parts of the country than before for two reasons. One is that during the pandemic, a lot of states experimented with things like early voting um, or letting people register online and things like that because of the pandemic. And when they tried those, they were popular and so they continued with them. In other uh, cases, I think that former President Donald Trump's attacks on voting and attacks on vote by mail and attacks on the election inspired Democrats to sort of rally around those. And so you saw a lot of states, particularly in the Northeast, uh, like New York, put a lot more energy into trying to make it easier to vote, make it easier to register. So really, like overall, like it's easier to vote in most parts of the country. And, and yet. And so yet, there's, there's all a big laws. and yet uh, yes. in your story, which is that even though it is unexpectedly, according to your reporting, easier to vote in a lot of places, and that this year's elections are likely to be okay, um, that maybe some candidates will claim they won when they lost. By and large, the 2022 midterm elections are going to be okay. But depending on who wins this time around, especially in important key states, could determine whether or not the 2024 election is going to be free and fair. When we looked at what officials have had to say, or people who are running for key offices have to say, we found 258 people who are either currently holding office or running uh, and have been nominated for an office of governor, secretary of state, attorney general, or U.S. House and U.S. Senate who are election deniers. So that's 258 people. We published a story noting how many people were on that list and we had to update it literally like within a day because there was another two people who'd been nominated. Ryan, one thing you found was that in five key swing states, and these are the states that tend to decide presidential elections, and tell me if I'm going to name them all right, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and Nevada, and also a sort of toss-up state of Pennsylvania, the candidates for governor, Republican candidate for governor, and or secretary of state, some of them have kind of multiple candidates, deny that Joe Biden won the election and uh, have in one way or another said that they would take steps to correct what they see as election fraud in the 2024 election if it should arise. Right. So the concerning thing there is that what we didn't see in the 2020 election, Trump and his allies pushed back in a lot of ways. But when push came to shove, local and state officials didn't go along with their sort of schemes. It was Republican officials. In a lot of cases, Republicans. In a lot of cases, these were diehard Trump 
loyalists who said, I just can't go along with this. Right. And I don't know that that's going to be the case if Trump or someone else tries a similar effort next time. At least among these governors, uh, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania is probably the one who, who did the most, both behind the scenes and as a state lawmaker, to try to further Trump's attempts to overturn the election in that state. And in his gubernatorial campaign, he has said things like he wants to decertify all of the voting machines. We saw Governor Wolf decertify every single machine in the state in 2019. We can do the same. I want to and you have a Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham. State Representative Mark Fincham is calling for statewide door-to-door voter verification in Arizona. He is running for Secretary of State right now and is a strong supporter of former President Donald Trump's unproven claims of widespread voter fraud. If they're elected, paint us a picture of what Arizona looks like in the next two years and what the state's laws would look like on the eve of the 2024 election. Arizona state lawmakers are not anxious to completely upend their very popular vote-by-mail system based on, you know, conspiracy theories and complaints um, from a fraction of voters. But you could see a lot of the Secretary of State, for example, in most states certifies which voting machines can be used. So if you are the Secretary of State and you're an election denier, you could simply pick you know, the machines that are used by counties that uh, you don't like that tend to go for, uh, you know, the other party. And you could just simply decertify all those machines. So suddenly those counties have to spend a bunch of money on their own because they're generally bought by the local officials to buy new machines. In fact, Maricopa County had to buy new machines because that Cyber Ninja's audit of Maricopa County in Arizona was so poorly run that they didn't have chain of custody of the machines and they couldn't keep using the machines because they couldn't say that they hadn't been tampered with. You could do things like, you know, try to kick more people off of the voter rolls as Secretary of State through a really aggressive purge. So just even creating sort of an air of chaos around, you know, when and how elections are conducted can be enough to really make it harder for people to vote. So given all of that, Ryan, how concerned should people be about the integrity of the next presidential election? The thing is, is there are so many election deniers running for so many offices that some of them, statistically speaking, some of them are going to win. I think that some of the people who've staked out the most extreme positions on this are going to lose. And that's largely because they've also staked out extreme positions on other issues that are more salient to voters and I think may end up hurting them more. You know, but some of these people are going to get in there. I mean, when you look at the Senate, you know, a lot of the Republicans who did not go along with Trump's efforts are retiring. So like Rob Portman of Ohio, the Republican nominee in that state is J.D. Vance, who's endorsed election denial. And Senate nominees in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, and New Hampshire, who have all denied the 2020 election was free and fair. And that's a lot of people. And some of them are going to win. And so, you know, what happens if some of these governor nominees win? And some of these Secretary of State nominees win and some of these Senate nominees win. You know, the next time that you see a similar effort to what Trump tried, and so far, I would say if you were a major party nominee and, you know, there's really been very little downside for Trump himself to have tried to contest the election. So I don't think that this is the last time that an election is going to be contested. And given the number of people who are 
running for office, the odds that it may come down to one of these people are, are good. And that's concerning. The laws don't concern me as much as the people do. You just don't know what they may do the next time they're faced with that question. Ryan, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, so thanks for that. We're going to keep you in the chair just a little bit longer. When we come back from the break, we are going to ask you what we should be looking for in this year's midterm elections. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Ryan, you've given us a pretty sobering overview of how all these potential changes to laws and candidates could affect the U.S. elections in 2024. But what about this year's midterm elections that are coming up in November? What are the places right now that people who are watching this election should keep an eye on for uh, looking at election interference, other election problems, and what that might mean. So there's three laws that have been passed since the 2020 election, which I think you can already see an effect from, which could be decisive enough to decide a, a close race. Um, the first is in Texas. They passed a law that said you need to put some kind of voter ID number on a vote-by-mail ballot. And that number had to either be your... Uh, driver's license number or your social security number. And they were warned when they passed this law that the state database only has one of those numbers. It doesn't have both because you only needed one to sign up to vote. And in some cases, you might have signed up to vote a long time ago and your driver's license number has changed because you've moved. And why did they do this? Well, this is one of those things where in the abstract, in the, in the hypothetical, it's actually a better law than the alternative, which is signature verification. Um, signature verification has been shown to be extremely problematic. A lot of young black and Hispanic voters have their signatures rejected at a higher rate. And so I'm not really a fan of signature verification. The numerical ID works in a lot of states where it's used and it's not really a problem. Um, but the reasoning behind all of this is presumably to prevent fraud. Right. I mean, the reason to pass this is that there's a theory that, you know, people are sending in fraudulent mail-in ballots. And again, there's not really evidence that there's a lot of that happening. But I think it's fine for a state to require some kind of ID verification and lots of states do that. But what happened in Texas was that if you put the wrong number to verify, then it was thrown out, even if it was a legitimate ballot, because they had no way to verify that number. They only had the other number. And so this was just an incredibly poor execution of an otherwise fine law. Um, they had, in the primary, they had 12% of mail ballots rejected. That's 23,000 ballots statewide that were thrown out. The national average for an election is about 1% of mail ballots are rejected, which is actually still probably includes a lot of people whose ballots were legit, they just were thrown out. That's a really, really bad rejection rate to be 12 times the national average. And if an election came down to a few thousand votes and you were throwing out, you know, and that's a primary. So so you can imagine it's going to be higher than 23,000 in November. That could be bad. 
does that mean that the 12% are people who put down a wrong number and therefore you could argue that it was a fraudulent ballot? No, no, no. They, that's they their, put down that's the, the correct, correct number. number. They put down their driver's license number, but the system only had their social security number. And so it was flagged as we can't verify this and it was thrown out. I mean, that's that's not a fraudulent ballot. That's not a ballot that you know should be rejected under the state's own laws. It's just that they enacted this law without you know, updating the database and putting the effort into actually making sure that this would work. And these ballots are disproportionately Democratic because Democrats are much more likely to vote by mail right now in Texas. Uh, so in the primary, there was a lot more Democratic ballots than Republican ballots that were thrown out. So that was really problematic. So, I mean, raises the question, I don't know if you have the answer. Did Republicans know that this would mostly affect Democrats? And is there reason to believe that that's behind it? Or is that just an effect of it? You know, vote by mail historically has not been partisan. It's not been something that either party had a consistent advantage in any state. There were some states where Republicans were more likely to take advantage of it, Republicans being older and less likely to move around. It's tended to be a little bit more friendly to Republican voters. And some states like in Florida, they have a really good system for sort of getting out the vote through vote by mail. Since Trump's attacks on vote by mail, Republicans are much less likely to indicate that they want to vote that way. And Democrats are much more likely to indicate that they do want to vote that way. So I think a lot of these laws that are seeking to limit vote by mail are sort of predicated on the idea that it's more popular with Democrats. That's not necessarily true, but it, it was true in the primary in Texas this time around. Now, Texas makes it really hard to vote by mail. So this is just a fraction of votes. You have to have an excuse or be over the age of 65 in Texas to vote by mail. So it's not a ton of ballots. But if you're throwing out 12% of them, you know, in a very close race, that could make a difference. So there's Texas. You said there are two other states. Yes. The other one that's the most concerning is going on right now in Georgia, where a law passed since the 2020 election makes it dramatically easier for people to come in and basically say, I think that this person is not a registered voter or like who is a registered voter is, is not valid and should be kicked off the voter rolls. And so a group affiliated with some allies of Donald Trump has gone into various counties. They went into Gwinnett County, which is a formerly Republican part of the state that's now trending Democratic. And they challenged the voter registrations of 37,000 people. What was the basis for saying they identified those particular people? Yeah, so under the 1993 motor voter law, it's actually kind of hard to remove someone from the voter rolls. It has to be done under certain circumstances. So there's a lot of times where someone has moved to a new state, they'll remain on the old state's voter rolls until either the state you know, get some kind of notification that, you know, they've moved or they don't vote and they show up as inactive and then they get sent a postcard. And if they don't respond to the postcard, then they're finally canceled. But it can take years for that process to play out. So there's always some dead weight on the voter rolls. So the risk is that along with people who maybe shouldn't be on the voter rolls in Georgia anymore, are a lot of people who do live in Georgia should be able to vote in Georgia, but are now being disqualified. Right. There's a reason why they typically wait to clean the voter rolls until the January following a, a major federal election. And that's because it's bad to take someone off who should be allowed to vote, like someone who's legally valid and just hasn't voted in a while because they just weren't inspired by the candidates or they got busy or they forgot. And then they decide, no, this is the time I'm going to vote. And they show up to vote and they can't. And Georgia doesn't have same day voter registration. So they're out of luck. And the last state is Florida. Never a shortage of drama there. 
I will say Florida, after the 2000 election where everything kind of came down to Florida and all eyes were on Florida, really cleaned up its laws. And, and overall, its voting laws are pretty good. And they really didn't want to tinker with them too much. The main change that they made that was problematic since the 2020 election was that the governor, Ron DeSantis, asked for a special election crimes police task force kind of agency that reports directly to him. And, and what is it that this uh, police force is going to do? Well, what they're supposed to do is look for people who voted fraudulently, people who voted twice, you know, voter registrations, that people who've broken some kind of voting law. And yeah, the particular reason why it was flagged as problematic was just that they report directly to the governor. And so sure enough, a couple of days before the primary, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a press conference in which he said, well, you know, I'm announcing that we're charging a bunch of people around the state with crime of voting, even though they are felons and aren't allowed to vote. And normally, I've been to a lot of these kinds of press conferences in the past. Usually, they're done by an attorney general. And usually, if it was something as sensitive as like voter fraud, they wouldn't do it three days before a primary. And this was very much not, did not follow that rule. He did not name who the people were. He didn't say where they were from. He just sort of insinuated that they were from more democratic areas of the county. He went to a democratic county to make the announcement. People in the state, voting right advocates in the state said that, you know, doing this just before an election is kind of an effort to intimidate people who, you know, may be unsure if they can vote. And it's particularly fraught in Florida because voters actually passed a referendum to restore voting rights to felons, which the state legislature and DeSantis then undermined by sort of complicating the process for doing that. So there may be a lot of people who are really uncertain of whether they can vote. And that by holding this announcement, by doing this, you know, he sort of made some of those people more fearful of voting. The other reason why it was problematic is that, you know, as it came out, like who these people were, like a lot of their cases were, you know, they were told by elections officials that they could vote. You know, in one case, they were sort of directly handed a form and said, here, sign up to register. It's fine. And so those cases really weren't as strong as he made them sound. So and of that's course, uh, Ron DeSantis widely thought to have his own eye on the White House. Right. And I think that that's the other reason why he did this was just that it allows him to show himself as being tough on election security. And right now, that's something that a lot of Republican office holders and nominees want to do. Thanks so much to Ryan Teague Beckwith for joining me. After the break, I speak to Mario Parker, Bloomberg's U.S. politics editor. He'll tell us about the latest in key races around the country with just one week to go before Election Day. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm here with Bloomberg's politics editor, Mario Parker. Mario, we've been talking all about the midterms, how election deniers could possibly 
disrupt a whole lot of things in this election and the next. But election day this year is fast approaching. Can you just kind of give us a lay of the land of what to expect? Because it just seems completely upside down out there. Wes, absolutely. It is upside down is an apt description. I think what's troubling from the election integrity perspective is the fact that a lot of these races are so close, right? If they were looking to be blowouts, well, it, it, that tempers maybe the expectations that someone may be able to deny the results of the election, right? But the close races kind of signal that at least they'll have a pathway to making those type of arguments, whether they're salient or not. So here are the races that are going to be crucial to determining control of Congress. In Pennsylvania, we've got Democrat John Fetterman against Republican Mehmet Oz, who was backed by former President Donald Trump. In Georgia, we have Herschel Walker, backed by former President Donald Trump as well, facing off against incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock. Similar races are taking place in Wisconsin with uh, incumbent Senator Ron Johnson against Democrat Mandela Barnes. Arizona has another Trump-backed Republican in Blake Masters, who is facing off against incumbent Democrat U.S. Senator Mark Kelly. So those are some of the close races to watch, in addition to Nevada, where you have incumbent Democrat U.S. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto facing off against another, correct me if you heard this before, another Trump-endorsed candidate in Adam Laxalt. I just want everybody to know, because you can't see this, but Mario just did all that off the top of his head without looking at any notes. So uh, kudos to you. And One of the things that we see in a lot of these races, as you say, they're close, but it wasn't that close in a lot of these races not so long ago. Even just a few weeks ago, some of these races have tightened. What happened that made uh, Republicans kind of pull up to Democrats who not so long ago looked like they were going to win? Talking to Democrats six weeks ago, oh, they were exuberant. You talked to them earlier this year, they were pretty gloomy. And why were they exuberant? They were exuberant. If you recall, that was off the heels of a couple of things happened during the summer that turned the tide for Democrats. You had the rollback of Roe versus Wade. That really ignited the base. Then you had former President Donald Trump back in the news with the search of his property in Mar-a-Lago, whether or not he was keeping state secrets there as well. And so that's just a gift for Democrats, right? And so they felt like they were going to get a little bit of momentum. Maybe they wouldn't keep the House because in the midterm elections, the party of the president often loses. But maybe it wouldn't be a total blowout. Right, because it wouldn't be a total blowout. It wouldn't be the red wave that they thought that was coming for them about a year ago after the Virginia gubernatorial election in which uh, Republican and former Carlisle co-CEO Glenn Youngkin upset Terry McAuliffe, who was a big deal in Democratic circles. So what changed from there? Because that kind of wind in their sails where they were all feeling pretty good about a bad situation now kind of feels more like they're feeling bad about what looks like is going to be a bad situation. Yeah, just a couple of things happened. Donald Trump isn't in the news as much. Now, that's relative, right? (laughs) So as much as he was in August and September, uh, Democrats went all in on the rollback of abortion rights. Really, if you look at some of the ads that Democrats are running, he, he likened it to squeezing all the juice out of that lemon, per se, right? And then Republicans really harped on crime, the the post-pandemic rise in crime, 
And you're saying that they that was an effective cudgel in Wisconsin. Mandela Barnes had been polling quite well against Ron Johnson. It eroded his lead. Same thing in Pennsylvania. Same thing in Georgia. And so when you look toward election night, I know that's going to be a hectic night for you. How do you see things shaping up now? One of the things we have to get comfortable with, and we saw some of this in 2020, though we didn't really expect it, is just a prolonged amount of uncertainty. We may just not know who controls the Senate for sure. As you mentioned, Wes, the House is a little bit more clear, but more challenging for them in the Senate races. And when it's all said and done, um, who do you think controls the Senate and who do you think controls the House? Oh, I wish I had that crystal ball, right? Uh, But I won't dodge your question on this one. A few weeks ago, as I mentioned, Democrats maybe could have held on to their majority, picked up one seat. Uh, Republicans right now, I think that dynamic has flipped, right? Where Republicans feel like it could be worst case scenario for them, it could be a draw. We stay deadlocked with a 50-50 Senate and maybe they pick up a seat. It's funny, uh, we had a reporter out with Joe Manchin, a senator from West Virginia who has uh, really stimmied parts of Biden's agenda, and he essentially said something like he's praying to God that it's not 50-50. Because then we would just have a deadlock for the next two years heading into the 2024 presidential election. Well, if the Republicans are able to somehow on November 8th fulfill right, their goal of having some sort of red wave where they take the House and are able to at least take a a slight majority in the Senate. Maybe they pick up one seat. If it's a great night for them, maybe they pick up two seats, right? Maybe they pick up Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona, right? That's the type of wave and momentum that they're hoping to catapult them to the White House in 2024. Maria Parker, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Wes. Great to be with you. You can check out Bloomberg's complete election night coverage and, I mean, complete maps and results, reporting analysis, everything you want and need to know. That's all on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Falero. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.